A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. So delighted to have here with me tonight Dr. John Curran. He is the author of Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks and Agatha Christie Murder in the Making. Welcome, Dr. Curran. Uh, would you prefer that I call you Dr. Curran or John? Oh, John. Okay. Well, we'll go with John then. Thank you so much for being here, John. Um, the first question I want to ask is how did you personally come to Agatha Christie? What was your relationship like with her work earlier on? Well, like millions of readers the world over, I began reading Agatha Christie when I was in school. Mm. And I remember I used to sometimes tell my mother I couldn't get her a George S. Hare in the library when I got myself an Agatha Christie. So that's how it started. And then people began to give them to me for birthdays and Christmases. So by the time I was leaving school, I'd read virtually every Agatha Christie. Mm. And then I moved on and read a lot of contemporary Sayers and Marsh and Dixon Carr. But I always came back to Agatha simply because she's she's the greatest. Mm. And and what was it about her work that kind of drew you in as a younger person? Well, I'm I, I'm a big fan of puzzles in general. Okay. I mean, I'm a daily crossword. Are you? As was <laughs> as was Agatha Christie, um, and I've always liked jigsaws and things like Sudoku. So. I do argue, um, not not in the secret notebooks books, but in other places, that essentially a good detective story is like a crossword, mm. even down to the use of the word clue. Oh, wow. Um, so it's, it's like a literary crossword. And when you get the last, the explanation in the last chapter, you look back and see, oh, I missed that clue and that clue and that indication and that hint. So I loved that part of it. Um, and I think nobody ever did it as brilliantly as Agatha Christie. And I say brilliantly, there were other writers who wrote highly ingenious detective stories, but they were almost intimidatingly ingenious. Mm. And Agatha Christie was the most accessible and still is the most accessible. Yeah. So that's how my addiction to Agatha Christie began. Mm. And it's continued right up to this day. Mm. Just there yesterday, I finished rereading for the umpteenth time Hercule Poirot's Christmas for obviously. Yes. And I just marveled anew at how simple she makes it all look. That's right. Now, you also study her work in a kind of academic setting as well. Mm -hmm. And when you began doing that, would, did you have any pushback? Was there a sense that her work was not up to academic standards or were people very accepting of that? Well, in a way, I was lucky because when I did the first Secret Notebooks, which was 2009, the reappraisal of Christie as a literary figure was more or less beginning. And I like to think in some ways Secret Notebooks brought that about mm. to some extent. Yeah. Now, I do think the tide has turned completely in the opposite direction in the sense that they now, they, you know, <laughs> the usual they, um, are analysing her far too much and trying to read too much into what she considered entertainment. Right. 
So while I do think for many years she was denigrated, if you like, and there was a lot of literary snobbery about her books, um, I, I've always maintained that she's not a great writer the way that Jane Austen or George Eliot is a great writer. Yes. But she's a much better writer than she was given credit for over the years. I, yeah. But at the same time, I, I will argue that she's not a great writer. She mm. is a great writer of detective fiction, but that's a different kettle of fish. Yeah. Can you say a bit more about the idea that she's being overanalyzed? In what context do you, do you think it's just the writing itself or do you think it's the content of her writing as well? Well, it's both, really. And one thing that is one of my hobby horses is ascribing ascribing reasons for her plotting mm. from elements of her own life. So, for instance, quite often you'll read an essay or a more, a more prolonged argument when one of the features is um, an internal triangle. And some writers would immediately hone in on the fact that, oh, well, of course, Agatha Christie was involved in an eternal triangle in 1926. Right. <laughs> show me the novel that doesn't have an eternal triangle in it, whether it's crime fiction or non-crime fiction. Um, you know, I was reading a book the other day about her, and it talks about the plot of Death on the Nile, and we all know the famous or infamous and eternal triangle in that. Mm-hmm. And and the writer said, and of course, this is based on Agatha's own personal experience of an eternal triangle. And I immediately mentally went into orbit because the writer clearly didn't realize that it is an identical plot that appears in Mysterious Affair of Stalin. That's right. Very <laughs> yeah. And she was very happily married and madly in love with Archie Christie and had no knowledge or experience of um, an eternal triangle and mm. jealousy and betrayal. So that's the kind of thing I mean. Right. Someone who wrote 66 novels and 150 short stories, of course they're going to feature betrayal and love and hate and jealousy and eternal triangles. But she was a writer of not just fiction, but detective fiction, which is almost completely plot driven, yeah. more than any other genre of fiction, mm. arguably. So ascribing motivations like that to Christine really annoys me because mm. she was writing detective fiction. She was plotting. Yeah. And we've all we all know that she used the same plot more than once, but disguised it in such a clever way that the vast majority of her readers didn't even realise it was the same plot. Yeah. Because the, the plot of Styles and Niles she used again in the latter part of her career. Mm. And again very few people noticed it. Because Earlier this year, I gave a talk in, on Christie at the Agatha Christie International Festival, and I mentioned this, the fact that the plot of Death on the Nile was used in a novel prior to it and a novel after it. But I didn't mention it during the course of the talk. Mm. But so many people approached me afterwards. In fact, that next morning in the hotel, uh, a man came up to me and said, would you come over to my table, please, and put my wife out of her misery? She can't work out <laughs> what book you were talking about. So, as I said to them then, well, that just shows what a good, clever, ingenious job Agatha Christie did with her plots, mm. because she recycled them and nobody knew, nobody noticed. So I'm getting down off my soapbox now. No, no it's, it's, I think you bring up a very excellent point. And I do think there's a degree to which over-analysis of her work, particularly, as you say, because it's entertain- for entertainment value, is dangerous. Mm. But I, I also do think that you can't write 66 novels and 147 short stories or 150, as you said, without having your own views be part of your writing. So I think there there well, has to be nuance to how we approach the analysis, because I don't think it's like a, a literal, you know, the eternal triangle for her eternal triangle. But I think if you say, well, her attitude in this is clearly coming through because the characters are talking to each other in such and such a way, I, I do think there's value to that because she, she obviously, she is a person. She had a voice and she had perspective. What do you think? Well, I- I agree and I don't agree. Mm. <laughs> when you write that amount of fiction and detective fiction, of course you're going to cover all, all of these areas. Yeah. But where do you draw the line? Why would you decide, for instance, to go back to the death on the Nile, mysterious affair, style analogy? Why is one of them a, a portrayal of 
jealousy and betrayal, and the other one isn't. Mm. I mean, they're both, the plots are absolutely identical yeah. when you take away all the external trappings. So I, I agree with you in the sense that, yes, of course, your common sense tells you that is the case. But how do you decide which one is and which one isn't? Well, I and the other yeah. thing, and this is a very contentious issue mm. with Christie and most of her contemporaries, when they say that things that we now know are appallingly, are appalling, politically, yes. correctly speaking. But, and I mean, I've argued with so many people about this. Why would we expect Agatha Christie, writing in writing eighty years ago, to think like we do today? Mm-hmm. Of course, she couldn't possibly. And just to take the racist element, of all of her contemporaries, she was probably the least racist racist in the sense that she travelled lots more than most of her contemporaries. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of them barely set foot outside the UK. Mm-hmm. So to think that Agatha Christie was racist, Agatha Christie the person was racist, mm-hmm. I don't subscribe to that at all. Mm-hmm. And some critics produce these elements of dialogue to back up their point, forgetting that a character is saying that. It's not necessarily yes. herself. That's correct. I, I agree with that. I think often we forget the nuance of a character saying something and it revealing yeah. something about the character as opposed to the author saying it and revealing yeah. something about the author. What I will say, though, is I think um, as, for example, I'm Jewish and there's anti-Semitism throughout quite a few of her books. And it's it's an unpleasant thing as a Jewish person to read. And it can be hurtful. And um, so I, I really can empathize with the feeling of wanting something that you love to treat you kindly. You know, I think oh, I, so I, I do. I, I think there's both sides to it. I can really understand wanting those things to not be present in the book and having to talk through it in order to process still loving the thing that you love. No, I, I agree with that completely. I can see how that would be a problem. But at the same time, that was... We all know now that was appalling in retrospect, looking back to 80 years. So why Agatha Christie would be different to the vast majority of people around her is is debatable. Yes. I mean, I I could take offence, and I'm sure Irish readers have, because she has two Irish murderers. But I I mean, I don't see that as insulting to Ireland or, or the Irish. And in fact, she has at least one drunken Irish person and possibly more, and certainly mm-hmm. anyone with any common sense living in Ireland or growing up in Ireland would know, well, that was the case. Right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously who's a murderer, you know, as you have, you have 66 books, women are murderers, men are murderers. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot. We can't necessarily be insulted by who's the murderer, um, but there are, like, turns of language I think is more the issue when she uses like um, the N word or when she uses like the K word for Jews or, you know, things like that, where it it really can kind of feel like a little bit of a like a little bit of a stab while you're reading it um, to a person who is that thing um, or is that like identifies that way. Yeah, no, I agree absolutely about that. And of course, the N word is a hugely contentious one. But I always try to make this point. That line was in existence long before she wrote the book. Yes, of course, of course. Um, no, of course she didn't invent the word. <laughs> no, she didn't. No, she didn't. Absolutely. But um, but but I think it's it's a really important conversation for me because I I love these books and so much of what we talk about on this podcast has ended up being how do we love imperfect things and kind of process through continuing to love them. I'm not going to stop reading Agatha Christie because I sometimes disagree with some of the language that she uses, but it is, oh, no. it's completely valid to me um, to talk about it because then at least you're, you're kind of um, saying that it's here. Let's talk about it and let's kind of decide what are uh, like how tied we are to still loving these books. And I, I, for my part, have not been able to stop loving them. I just, for me, Agatha Christie is one of the greatest writers ever. Uh, but that doesn't mean her work is perfect. Um, oh, no. So that that's kind of where I, I come from with it. And it seems to be that you come from a similar place, which is that we have, yeah. we don't like it now, but we can't necessarily read it anachronistically and expect her to be uh, no. what we would want today. Yeah, that's, that's my perspective as much as I possibly can. Yeah. 
And and I'm interested, have you gotten a lot of pushback about that perspective? I mean, is it something that you feel that people don't don't agree with you on? No. Um, no, I think a lot of people would agree. Mm. But then people probably of a certain generation. And of course, from your standpoint, it's very personal. Yeah. Um, you know, I, do, I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious about the two Irish murderers. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but your, but your no, point is taken. Your point is totally taken. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's so interesting. I, I love having that conversation. And I think it continues to be an evolving conversation in talking oh, about Christy. So. Yeah. And will, will be for many years to come, probably. Absolutely. And, and all that does really also is keep her relevant because when we're when we continue to want her to be better what we're saying is we love what's underneath you know that that desire for it to be better is coming from a desire of so loving so much of what's there already yeah from admiration yeah completely um so i love your book agatha christie's complete secret notebooks it's such a great way to dive into her mind a little bit. Um, And at the beginning, you have this intro where you outline kind of what you believe to be the reason for her success. And one of the reasons you hit on is her productivity. Um, And until reading that, I had never really considered it. And it kind of blew my mind because Mm. even though the breadth of her work is completely awe-inspiring to me, I'd never considered that her success might be just due in part to simply writing so much. Um, and do you think she would be remembered today if she hadn't produced at that same volume? Well, I always say that if she had never written another book after the murder of Roger Ackroyd, mm. she would still be spoken about today because of the groundbreaking element of that. Yes. Book. But the fact that she wrote, whatever, 56 more books after <laughs> right. that is a huge factor. And when you, Agatha Christie would be the first adult reader that a lot of, of young people and teenagers that's right and, and when they realize there are that many books like you said a moment ago you just take it for granted and you don't actually stand back and look at it mm. because they've always been there they're always listed as also by the same author on the back of the title page so you just think oh that's great i've all those books but you don't look at her contemporary so i remember working out many years ago she wrote more than Dorothy Sayers, Niall Marsh, and Marjorie Allingham put together. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, and that's just novels, let alone short stories. And that's not even going near her stage work. Wow. So it was quite phenomenal. And I think it's in Secret Notebooks that I, I remind readers, most of them would be established Christie readers reading Secret Notebooks, that you can read a different Agatha Christie every month for eight years. I mean, there are very few writers in any field of endeavour that you can say that about. Um, leaving aside the, the, the production line of Ernest Stanley Gardner or John Creasy or some of those people, right. who, by the way, are almost completely forgotten nowadays. That's right. But Christie has this huge back catalogue that everyone kind of takes for granted. Yeah. So it, I think it is a factor in her success yeah. because you can have literally a lifelong relationship with Agatha Christie. That's right. And so many of us do. That that productivity is matched by quality, and that's where she differs from everybody else. Mm. One of the only writers I can think of who would fall into a similar category is Stephen King. Um, Not in... Sorry? Has he he published that many books? I don't know if he's published as many, but in terms of kind of the uh, ubiquitous nature of his work yes. within a particular genre. I mean, you... Yes. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Um, and also... And the quality. One Stephen King book equals about three Agatha Christie's by and large. Right. Just page numbers. That's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, her yeah. books are incredibly short. Um, they are. But, but they don't feel short. They don't feel brief, if no. that makes sense. Um, and I, I, I always argue no book was ever improved by adding 200 pages. <laughs> Well, she, um, yeah, that's true. Because there is, a, there is a, well, there has been now for the last ten or twenty years, a huge um, increase in page numbers in crime novels. That's and right. I, I, I just don't understand it. I mean, I blame Elizabeth George. <laughs> don't blame anybody. This <laughs> book that I, I devoured them in the early stages, and I actually met her, and she was here in Dublin, and I met her, 
and she was completely charming, and I loved the early books. But then they began to grow and grow and grow until the last one was about 800 pages. And I thought, no, that's just off-putting. Yeah. Whereas Christie is just perfect for a plane journey or a train journey or sitting by the pool or whatever on your holidays. And, of course, you end up reading the same book a few times during your lifetime. That's right. Unless you remember absolutely who done it. It's like reading for the first time. Yes, that's completely right. Um, I was speaking earlier with Sophie Hanna, uh, who writes the Poirot books today, and she was saying, you know, I can list off of the top of my head a few books that I, if you asked me right now who did it, I would have no idea. And I've probably read it, you know, 10, 15 times. So they really do have that effect where you can start at the beginning and go, my mind is a blank. (laughs) They do, but unfortunately not with me. I've never ever forgotten any killer in any Agatha Christie. Really? No, I know it is quite phenomenal, isn't it? It is. I I read three or four detective novels a week, and a lot of them now at this point in my life are re-reads. And quite often I don't don't remember who's done it until I get to the last chapter, Mm. but that has never, ever applied to Agatha Christie. I always remember them. In fact, I always remember them to such an extent that at one stage, Many years ago, I seriously considered hypnotism to make me forget <laughs> who done it. I know everyone laughs when I tell them that, but I really did think about it. Wow. And, and things wh- have turned out why didn't you go through lucky. with it? Why didn't you go through with the hypnotism? I, I thought it was too risky. And as things turned out, I was right because I would never have been able to write secret notes ah. if I had. That's, if I had forgotten that may, of course you want to you want that in your mind so tell us a little bit about the process of writing the secret notebooks getting access to the notebooks and um, what you kind of discovered along the way well I, I gained access to them through Matthew Pritchard mm-hmm. who was Agatha Christie's grandson mm-hmm. and in that about well, it's almost 20 years ago now, I flew to Calgary in Canada, which was a 23-hour journey for me from Dublin, oh, because they were mounting for the very first time an Agatha Christie play that had never been staged before. So I, I was in touch with the, the director of the play, and I said I was thinking of going over, and he encouraged me. And Because I said to him, well, the main reason I'm going to fly 4,000 miles is because if I wake up in Dublin on the morning after the first night, I bitterly regret it because it would be my only chance to see a first night of an Agatha Christie stage play. So I flew to Calgary, and there also was Matthew Pritchard and his then-wife, who sadly died about a year later. Um, And I kind of knew Matthew vaguely, and we got talking. We were staying in the same hotel, and we had breakfast together every morning. And we did a few media, newspaper, TV spots because it was a big deal, a brand new Agatha Christie play. Mm. So uh, on the last day of the the event, I asked Matthew, very cheekily in retrospect, could I invite myself to Greenway House, her home in Devon? Because I knew it would be handed over to the National Trust. And once that happened, all bets are off. So he agreed, absolutely. So a few months later, I went flew over to Greenway House and spent a weekend in Greenway House with Matthew and discovered the box of notebooks um, because at the top of the stairs in Greenway House, there, well, there was, there still is a room. And in it, it's, it's different now, of course, because you can visit Greenway and it's been changed. But there was a, a, a line of cupboards behind the door and they contained essentially the history of Agatha Christie's writing career. So apart from the notebooks, there were some typescripts, typescripts, uh, letters, playbills, film posters, contracts, correspondence. Wow. Multiple, multiple copies of her books, a lot of them signed, um, paperbacks, hardbacks, American editions, UK editions. So I had, I was there for the weekend and I spent 23 hours of that weekend in that room. Because uh, wow. Matthew, very kindly, had organized lunch with this person and dinner with that person. I, I cried off every time I stayed <laughs> with the lunch. 
So I went through every page of every notebook at least once over that weekend. Wow. And then I met Matthew and lunch then for lunch in London a few weeks later and I asked him, Would would it be okay if I were to write a book about the notebooks? And he agreed immediately and just said to me, But you'll have to sort out the publisher yourself. So I approached Harper Collins because I knew the person who looked after the Christie estate, David Braun, and he said, Oh yeah. And so when people ask me how did I get published, it's very disconcerting for them because I asked Matthew and he said yes, and I asked David Braun and he said yes, and that was it. I had a contract. So then I set to photocopy all the notebooks and then transcribe every page of every notebook into oh Word God. documents and then had to put the notes for every individual novel together because they were scattered hither and yon throughout the notebooks. Wow. I remember sparkling cyanide, the notes for that are scattered over 15 notebooks. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it was like an enormous jigsaw. But I had the time of my life. I mean, obviously, I was paid to, to write the book, sure. but I would have done it for nothing. In fact, oh, I yeah. probably would have paid them for permission. <laughs> that sounds um, like a, such a treat to get to dive oh, into those notebooks. Oh, it was. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And I'm sure I bored Matthew Silly that weekend. <laughs> When I would go down for tea or lunch or whatever, just downstairs in Greenway, I'd say to him, Matthew, do you know that Miss Marple was originally due to appear in Death on the Nile? And Matthew, do you know that your grandmother was was trying to write Mousetrap too? And he probably wanted to get on with reading the paper. Right. Or <laughs> yeah. I was just so caught up in all this excitement. Mm. I mean, it was literally a once in a lifetime event. absolutely what was the most exciting or surprising thing you found in the notebooks um probably the final chapter of styles mm. because christy fans may or may not know that when she submitted her very first book <clears throat> the readers from john lane were very impressed with it mm. apart from the last chapter because in the last chapter Poirot explains the crime and identifies the killer while he's giving evidence of the witness box. Right. Now, that was completely important from every point of view, mm-hmm. not least the legal point of view. So John Lane said, well, yeah, we're happy to publish the book, but you have to rewrite the last chapter. Mm-hmm. So she rewrote the last chapter, and it's the chapter that we've all been familiar with over the last 50 right. years, or 80 years anyway. So in one of the notebooks, there is um, the original chapter of the, the court's case where he gives his evidence on the witness box. And I should say, even though I'm Agatha Christie's number one fan and always will be, the writing of that chapter was absolutely diabolical. It took me months. And I, I think I say in the, in the intro, but for the fact that it was Agatha Christie's first book and her Poirot's first case, I would never have persevered. But because it was what it was, I mean, it's a it's a part of literary history. I persevered and would leave it for a week or two and go back to it and identify another phrase <sighs> and then put it all together. And it now appears in the reprints of Mysterious Affair Styles mm-hmm. in a sort of compare and contrast way. And um, so that was unimaginably exciting. Wow. Incredible. Now, the book we're going to talk about today is Five Little Pigs. Um, I'm going to give just a little brief historical note before we get started. Five Little Pigs was published in 1942. It was originally published as Murder in Retrospect, and it comes right after Evil Under the Sun, which is another great Poirot, and in the same year as Body in the Library and The Moving Finger, which are both marples. Um, Christie adapted Five Little Pigs for the stage in 1960, naming it Go Back for Murder, and took Poirot out of this version, substituting a lawyer instead, which she's, you know, she's taken Poirot out of play adaptations numerous times. Um, It was also adapted for ITV's Poirot with David Suchet in 2003. Um, Five Little Pigs was extremely well received, both in terms of the satisfying conclusion of the mystery and also the going back in time plot device, the cold case. It is one of my personal favorite Christie books, and um, I think this book would be a classic, even if it was the only book she'd ever written, to be honest. I don't know if you agree with that. But um, I, I would agree. I would agree. But just sorry, Rebecca. Just before we go any further, I yeah. should add that the, those dates are not the same dates in the UK. 
Oh, okay. In the UK, it was published in January 1943. Oh, okay. It was published in the US, it it says, in 1942. Yes, no, it was published in 1942. At that point, most of her books were published in the US first. Yes, correct. So just to clarify that, in case anyone is listening and scratching their head and thinking you got it wrong, (laughs) you didn't, but it's 1943 for the UK edition. Um, It's funny, again, at the Agatha Christie Festival in September, there was a panel discussion with um, the other podcaster, Kemper Donovan. Yes. And we were working out, and this is just a piece of fun, really. (laughs) Serious fun. Um, The the greatest ever Agatha Christie. Mm -hmm. And the four people on the panel, three of them all said, and I include myself in this, that prior to reading and thinking about and studying, if you like, Five Little Pigs, our favourite had always been, and then there were none. But... As we matured, I suppose, as readers and fans and began to appreciate Agatha Christie more, we all changed our opinion to Five Little Pigs. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was quite interesting. That is interesting. Because I still think, and then there were none, our greatest technical achievement. Mm. But Five Little Pigs, I would argue, as would you, I think, yeah. that it's her best marriage of detective plot and novel. Completely agree. And, you know, and I, I completely understand why people love And Then There Were None so much. Um, it is... The problem set it gives itself and solves is so geniusly done. Um, I I don't enjoy reading And Then There Were None, um, and I typically don't reread it very often, whereas Five Little Pigs is a book that I have reread, I I mean, countless times. I think it's just such a fantastic, not only mystery, but as you say, novel. It's a wonderful character study. Um, I think it also is one of the best examples of Christie's ability to write because um, the the kind of um, when each little you know pig, each one of the five suspects gives their um, retelling of the story, the way she's able to change tone and language ever so slightly to exactly. capture each character yeah. is to me exactly. such an incredible example of her mastery of language. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. The other, the other point about those five accounts, mm-hmm. one of them is a Roger Ackroyd. Mm. Say more about if that. You know what I mean. Say more about yeah. it. Yeah. Because one of them, the, the five little pigs, they're the only five suspects. That's if right. we assume we all do that Caroline Cray wasn't guilty. Correct. So it has to be one of these five. So when Paul asked each of them to write their account of the day yeah. um, and the events leading up to it, one of them is writing it as the killer. That's which right. Is, which is Roger Ackroyd. But and the other po- interesting point is, um, I mean, this wouldn't have been known in 1942-43, but of course, Greenway House is the physical setting for the story. That's right. So the, the Battery Garden, where um, Elsa is posing for Amias and where he's later found dead, that still exists. The, the only difference is there's no door into it, and as far as I can work out, there never was. Okay. But the wall on which she poses. Mm. Still, uh, it overlooks the River Darn. Right. Um, and the, the path where they find the crushed pipette, um, that path that leads back up to Greenway House. So she was using the geography of her own house mm, yes. and grounds. And even Meredith's house across the river where he rolls across, mm-hmm. that also exists. That's right. But of course, at the time, nobody except her immediate family and friends would have known that. Right. And it doesn't really make any difference, but it is fascinating now. It is. To visit it. it is, especially, and, and, especially because so much of the going up and down is kind of part of the plot or the intricacy oh, of that moment. So the fact that she kind of oh, chose a place she knew so, so well, I think, you know, it lends much. itself to being able to write well about it. Very much so. Yeah. And I, I, the other thing that fascinates me about the book and the notes. There are more notes to this than almost any other book. Mm. And the entire plot changes from the early notes to the last notes. That's right. Uh, absolutely everything about the book changes. Wow. And it just brought home to me how much these books that we all find so easy to read in every corner of the globe, Agatha Christie worked and worked and worked and polished them until she got the plot that she wanted. It yes. wasn't as if she sat down and just rattled it off. Right. She really worked at it, and, and the, the notebooks for that, the, the notes for that, are brimming with ideas. That's and right. she discards almost all of them from the early stages 
and just keep working and working until she gets the plot that we're all familiar with and we all admire so much. It is, I think it's her greatest yes. book. And it would be certainly my desert island reading if I could only take one night of history yeah. to, a, to a desert island. And it, as you said a moment ago, it repays rereading at regular intervals. <laughs> yes. Can, can you give us a one minute or so synopsis of the book in your own words? Um, certainly. So <laughs> a young Canadian girl, Carla Lamarchand, approaches Poirot and asks him to investigate the murder 16 years earlier. Um, for which her mother was convicted and her mother died subsequently in prison. So Poirot agrees but does warn her that if he finds the truth, it, it, she may not like it necessarily, but she agrees. So he, he approaches the five other people who were in the house that day and he speaks to them, first of all, and then he asks each of them to write an account. So we have the conversations with Poirot and the five suspects, and then we have their accounts. And then there are a few more chapters where he tidies up these ends and asks wonderfully enigmatic questions mm-hmm. of the five suspects. And then they all, in the in the good old way, gather in the drawing room of Alderbury Manor, as Greenway House became for the purposes of the novel, and disclose the murderer. And it's... At the end, he agrees that there is no proof. So the murderer almost literally walks off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. One of the very few examples in history of some, well, certainly one murderer getting away with it. Yes. Because there is no proof. That's 16 right. years is a long, long yeah. time. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's a good synopsis. <laughs> that's a fantastic synopsis. And, and I... It's so interesting you talk about the end and how there is no, you know, kind of mm. grand moment with a, uh, the police dragging somebody off. And no. I, I read this book and the more I read it, the more I read it as a tragedy. Oh, um, absolutely. And, and it really is such a moving book in so many elements. And one of the things I actually really like about it is her nuance in how she approaches Elsa because yeah. – Although there's a lot of comments about her being hard-boiled and a nasty piece of work and all these mm-hmm. kinds of things from a lot of the characters, what I, what I think Christy really keeps coming back to her keeps coming back to is the kind of vulnerability of her youth. And um, you know, when we meet her later on, she is 36, so she's not an older woman. Um, she was so 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 young when this all kind of unfolded. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And so there's something uh, I. I wouldn't say Christy is often very judgmental about any of her characters, but there's something so gentle about the way she treats Elsa in particular that I find really moving. I don't know if you agree. And I think that is the effect she's aiming for because almost at the end of the book, um, when he asks the others to leave and he talks to Elsa on his own, Mm -hmm. and she says, and I'm reading from the book here, Elsa got up, she went across to the door and said, uh, they went, she and Daniel both escaped. They went somewhere where I couldn't get at them, but they didn't die. I died. Mm-hmm. And that is such a telling two word sentence. Yeah. Because she repeats it then. In, she said again, I died. Yeah. Um, which, of course, is a so, so even though she's not hauled off to jail or in those days to the scaffold, yeah. um, she was in prison for the rest of her life, yeah. at least. So it is quite moving. And I also think it's the best of the David Suchet adaptations. Mm. Although I have, I do have some reservations. The main one being Carolina's Hound. Oh, I forgot that. I remember that oh, they. No, I, I was, yeah, go on. Sorry. I was outraged. I was shouting at the TV. Oh no! Oh, because that is completely against. Yes. Christine Ross. She yes. would never hang an innocent person. Yeah. In the book, she dies in prison, and that's that happens right. also to Jack O'Argyle in Ordeal by Innocence. That's right. He dies in prison. But for Caroline to be hanged is outrageous. And I also have grave reservations in the end, in the TV adaptation, when Elsa produces a gun. Yes. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that, because I know, having read the complete notebooks, you say that the original murder weapon was meant to be a gun. Um, and then it was changed to poison. Oh, well, Is that yes, correct? That's true. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yes, yeah. And I think I'd say something along the lines of 
Christy was much happier dealing with poison. Yes, she was. Yeah. I actually I I had a question about this for you because, you know, poison is really like quite a people die much more by gunshot than they die by poison in terms of murder. Um, But but Christy uses poison all the time. Um, And I'm wondering if you think that her use of poison has had a general effect on crime fiction's use of poison, because I I feel like poison is not something people know that much about. But she was obviously much more of an expert given her background in um, during the war. But uh, I guess I I just find it to be like, was she kind of the starting point of where people were constantly using poison in crime fiction? I I don't know. A lot of her contemporaries would have used poison. Okay. Um, in their, I mean, strong poison. Yeah. One of both of Sarah's best books. Yeah. Um, I I always think Christie was right to stick to poison because I think she said it in her autobiography. You know, I know very little about guns. Right. Because there's a whole lot of technical details, different types, different models, different mates, revolvers, mm-hmm. pistols, bullets. Um, so if that was an unknown quantity to her, she was right whenever she could to stick with poison. Mm. And of course, poison is, as a, as a murder method in a, in a detective novel, leads to a lot of... Um, if you like extra mystification because right. of course you can poison somebody and they don't die for a couple of hours right. so you can seem to have a perfect alibi right. even though you poison their medicine bottle or their right. cough mixture or whatever it might be um, whereas with a gun by and large for the most part you have to be there when you pull the trigger so I think it gave her a lot more scope um, and she uses poison probably more than any of her contemporaries with the possible exception of John Rode Mm-hmm. The writer who's almost completely forgotten nowadays. Um, so I would like to think she's a writer, Rebecca, but I'm not sure because the yeah. tendency now in crime fiction is for the more gore and splatter yes. and violence, the better. And poison is the antithesis of all of that. That's right. And I, 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 as I, as I was saying it to you, I was thinking to myself, poison served such a specific purpose in kind of the universe mm-hmm. of Christie because this idea of you know kind of the cozy. Uh, cozy murder or a murder that where you don't feel kind of um, like there's no gruesomeness or grotesqueness in terms yeah. of like the corporeal sense. Um, poison kind of offers that opportunity, whereas obviously a gunshot is a very violent uh, physical thing. Very. Yeah. Very. No, I mean, having said that, of course, the book we talked about earlier, Death on the Nile. Yes. Is, it has Two, three, no, two gunshots. Two gunshots, um, yeah. Gunshot murders. But I think most people would agree that all of her really great novels feature poison in some shape or form because she, but she was literally an expert at it. Right. That's right. Um, now we talked. We've talked earlier about you. Kind of don't think you can bring in. Um, too much over analysis of the psychology of the characters into Christie's mm. work. Do you think there's any element that you can analyze in that way within Five Little Pigs? Because it is such such a psychological book. It really is about the relationships and the nuances of the relationships between the characters. Oh, oh it is absolutely. And I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with one of the earliest books ever by Christie, Robert Barnard's A Talent to Deceive. I haven't and read it. May- yeah. Right, well, he makes a very interesting point <clears throat> that if you do your, your maths and subtract 16 years from 1942, mm-hmm. the, the UK, the, the US date, you arrive at 1926. Ah, the, the, yes, the famous 1926. Yes, exactly. We're also, um, Amias Crail and Archie Christie have the same initials. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. We're getting a little out there. <laughs> Amias Crail was a philanderer, right. although on a more of an industrial scale. Yeah, yeah, he was really a equal opportunity yeah. philanderer. Yeah, he was, yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, I mean, that book was published in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it is one of the best books I've studied in Christmas technique. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't subscribe to the idea. Right. Perhaps, 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 way down at the bottom of the back of her mind, there was something like this. But I think if you start doing that, where do you stop? Um, it, it brings us back to the 
point we discussed earlier. I do think the characters drawn in Five Little Pigs and in the book Three Years Later, The Hollow, are much more seriously drawn than, yes. for instance, in the ABC murders. Um, and she did say, she wrote an essay in the 1940s saying that as years have gone on, she's more interested now in the characters and the motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, less in, any, anyone who looks at her books chronologically can see that as, as years go on, there's less and less, you know, footprints in the clay outside the window, mm-hmm. um, fingerprints, bloodstains, alibis, clever notes, phone calls. They all appeared in the 1930s and some of the 1940s books and the odd ones scattered further down the chronology. But by and large, um, you're talking serious character studies. Mm-hmm. So in between Five Little Pigs and The Hollow, we have Sparkling Cyanide, right. which in many ways is quite Five Little Pigs-ish because you've got a group of people and you have a section devoted to their perspective yes. on the murder a year earlier. In the night club. So yes, the, the the characters in Five Little Pigs and a lot of the books of the later forties would stand up to more scrutiny than yeah. those of the earlier books. But then that would apply to most of our contemporaries as well, because the nineteen thirties was the heyday of the I would now call it the golden age within it, mm-hmm. when clever murder methods and clever alibi systems and all sorts of disguises and quite frankly, in many cases, in other writers unlikely and unbelievable methods of committing murder. Mm. Um, but it moved on then to more psychological and of course with more sex and violence and, and dark psychology came into it. Mm. But for most people, Christie's greatest achievement would be the ones in the thirties and, and early forties. So yes, I do think they stand up to more scrutiny, but I also think there is a limit. Of um, course. You, if you want to see something, you will find it. I mm. mean if it all looks yellow to the jaundice die, if you're looking for something odd or something significant or something to back up an argument, mm. if if you've got 66 novels and 150 short stories to choose from, well, you're going to find it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you'll eventually but, find what you're looking for. Um, yeah. Now, Poirot was taken out of the stage adaptation of this. Mm. Um, and I actually think Poirot is not like the most present character in this book. I think he actually doesn't even need to be... It's great that he's in the book and I love him in any book, but I don't feel that he is a necessity in this book. Would you agree with that? Um, Other than as a plot device, of course, but I, I just mean he his character is not so much to yeah. the fore. No, he's very much in, he's very much in the background. Yeah. But he is the person, oh, clearly, he is the, the detective. Yes. He pulls it all together. So he is the deus ex machina. Right. Um, and he's the one who arrives at the solution yeah. and identifies the killer. But no, you're right. I mean, the, the vast majority of the book is devoted to the other characters. Yeah. And I, but I, I do love, No, go ahead. I, I, I do love his questions towards the end. Mm-hmm. Yes. Have you, had you just read The Moon and Sixpence by Somerset? Yes, Martin? that's a great, that's oh, a great yeah. moment. <laughs> And his other great phrase, which applies in general to most of Christie, is with the eyes of the mind that one sees. When he talks about, well, the flowers could have been flown in from Baghdad this morning because the fresh flowers that don't grow in the UK at that time of the year. So he's absolutely right. And of course, that is relevant to the plot of Five Little Pigs. Um, but no, you're, he's much more in the background than mm. he would be in some of those other cases. Yeah. But he is necessary. Yes. But then, but you probably realize she took him out of all of the stage adaptations. Yes, because he, she felt, as am I right, that she felt he kind of took up too much focus on stage. Well, he, yes, he does take up too much focus. And of course, there is the other point, and this is why she wouldn't let him appear on the covers of books, because ah. she argued quite wisely, I think, that all of her readers, whether they're living in Helsinki or Honolulu, they all have their own image of Edward Poirot. And no matter how good or how accurate or how well done the image on the cover is, it's not going to be their Edward Poirot. Mm. So in a way, they start the book at a disadvantage. So I think she was quite clever in that. In 1974, when they published Poirot's early cases and when she was, you know, very, very frail and, you know, not far from death as it came about, she relented somewhat and allowed his 
taking together a fax to appear on the UK edition. But that was a big deal. Yes. Um, Interesting. Rather that he didn't. And I think she was right, certainly. I have to say, much as I admire both the TV version and the book, I think the stage play is very, very poor. Mm. And it shouldn't be. It should be really interesting, but it's not a very good stage adaptation. Oh, interesting. And wasn't a huge success at the time. And Klein Bonnet is very rarely performed nowadays. Mm. Um, But she was right, I think, as you say, he pulls too much focus from everybody else and everything else. Mm. Yeah, because with the book, you can kind of shift narrative and then you have no choice but to not focus on Poirot. Whereas especially because of his kind of co- like the not comical but you know the his appearance is very uh, overwhelming so yeah uh, i can imagine visually that that would be the case and you know it's yeah. funny as i'm as i'm thinking about it as well this book has a similar um element to the moving finger which came out just after which is that it has the two main detectives but very much as background characters um oh very much. And and that's kind of an interesting thing that Christie experimented with, which was kind of pulling her main detectives in and out of focus. Um, yeah. I strongly suspect, and this is just a suspicion, I've absolutely nothing to back it up, that <laughs> because in, Miss Mar- in The Moving Finger, as you say, Miss Marple's only in the last dozen pages, mm-hmm. literally. And I, I sometimes wonder, did she bring her in at the, at the request of the insistence of her publisher? Oh, interesting. Because, um, I mean, it, let's be honest, it was a commercial venture. Yeah. While Agatha Christie, was, we all loved the books and whatever, she was writing for money. Sure. And uh, Collins wanted to sell as many copies as possible. And if they could advertise something like the new Miss Marple or the new Quarrel, that was a huge cachet for them and probably increased sales. But Miss Marple is just barely in the moving finger. Yes. I mean, it's almost an apologetic appearance. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That would be but a good now, but it, it's, it, it, In Five Little Pigs, Quarrel plays a bigger part than that. It has that's true, said. absolutely. Um, you noted in, in the Complete no- Secret Notebooks um, that Christie had a number of unused ideas, which you include mm. at the end of the book. Which idea do you wish that she'd used? Well, the one that fascinates me is the one where, now I have to rack my brains a little bit here. <laughs> we all know the, the um, plot device in Miracle from Side to Side with mm-hmm. the horizontal glass. Yeah. You know, you know that? Yes, plot of device? course, of course. Yeah. But in the notebook, she's toying at one stage with the person to whom the glass is handed is the killer. Oh, the handed to that she refers to them, which in a way is kind of mirror cracked. But it seemed she wanted to work out a more elaborate version of that because they would be the last person mm. you, would, you would imagine. Um, and of course, she did have um, notes for Mousetrap too, ah. which was, was fascinating. That is, but never came to anything. Um, and it was—I'm not sure. Do, do I discuss Mousetrap too in either of the books? I can't remember at this point. Um, and then the other one that I think was, was fascinating, she wanted to work in the Cluedo board game into a plot. Well, I love that. <laughs> or, or I think it might be called Clue, is it, in the US? Yes, it's called Clue in the US, that's right. Yeah, but it is the ultimate whodunit it board is. game. It is. It's actually my, my favourite film of all time is Clue. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the film, but it's wonderful. Oh, it is. It's good fun. Yeah. Um, so she wanted to have a Colonel Mustard and a Miss Scarlet and a Mrs. White and whatever. Oh, and that just, would have been such a joy. Yeah, wouldn't it just? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. Well, John, I want to say... I mean, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. She wrote 66 novels and 150 short stories and 20 stage plays, and the notebook is still littered with unused ideas. Incredible. What an amazing what an amazing brain. Absolutely. I mean, she could, she would have just kept going if she, you know, if we all oh, lived sure. forever. Yeah. Because I make the point in one of the books, I can't remember which, but it would be in the complete ones, that although we all admit in the last 10 years of her life, the quality of the books deteriorated, but 
I think it's important to recognize that what it was the quality of the development of the plot that deteriorated, not the idea behind mm, the plot. Interesting. She still had lots of ideas. I mean, even the last horror book that she wrote, which of the of the couple committed suicide first, that's a great idea. Yeah. But unfortunately, at that point in her life, she wasn't up to developing that in the way she would have yeah, 30, I understand. 40 years earlier. And even the last book, Posthumous Fate, which by any standard is a really dreadful book. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, premise, it's, it's based on a great premise. Mm. Mary Jordan did not die naturally. It was one of us. I mean, that's pure Agatha Christie. Yeah. But sadly, that's where the great Agatha Christie element of it stopped, unfortunately. Yeah. I ac- and I have to say, I actually love Curtain. I really enjoy Curtain. Oh, Curtain is wonderful, yeah. absolutely. So, it's in my top half, doesn't Yeah. I mean, she plays so many tricks on the reader. She does. And I also, when I made this point at the festival in, in September, she wrote that book and put it in a safe, but she wrote about Quarrel for the next 40 years, knowing that he was dead in a safe, and not just dead, if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. And she kept writing about him. And she was the only one who knew that, well, apart from her agent, probably. That's so um, fascinating. Oh, Curtin is a, is a wonderful it's book. It's a wonderful book. Wonderful. You know, and I've actually run into quite a lot of people who say they won't read it. Yes. Um, I, have a friend who, I have a friend in Dublin. She's never read it and probably never will because it's just too poignant for her to, and to read it. It's so fascinating to me because for me, I see the breadth of the work. You know, I could always oh, go back and visit with Poirot in another book. So the idea of him dying in one book has no yeah. kind of, uh, like, no. it doesn't impact my ability to read the other books. Um, oh, and, no. and if we're taking them as real people, then, of course, everybody dies eventually. So you kind of yeah, have to accept exactly. that premise, you know. Um, Absolutely. So it's exactly. it's an interesting thing to be, um, to feel. I, I can understand, of course, the, the feeling, but uh, it's such a great book. To not read it is such a shame, I think. Oh, because oh, you're missing out on one of the best ever crystals. I really agree. I agree. Um, yeah. I really want to say thank you so much for joining me tonight. This has been so interesting, and I hope you've had fun too. Oh, I have fun. Because <laughs> I always say to people, interviewers or podcasters or whatever, the problem is not to start me talking, it's to stop me talking. <laughs> well, we can keep going and going, but um, I'm sure you have lots yeah. of things to get to. But where can people find you or find your work if you would, uh, if you would like for them to do that? I don't do a website, I'm afraid. Okay. I did in the early days, but then I'm I'm not I'm a bit of a technophobe. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, um, you know, they can find me in I can be complete secret notebooks. Mm-hmm. Great, yeah, and we will have uh, links to your books in the episode notes, so right. people can click through there and buy them and and I recommend them very much and The Complete Thank Secret you. Notebooks was a, such a joy to read. If you are a fan of Agatha Christie, getting into her mind a little bit and also your interpretation of what she's saying, it's it's really joyful, pleasurable and ve- like you just respect her legacy in such a um astonishing way. So it's Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad I'm glad that this is not on camera because I'm blushing. <laughs> I can feel the blush through the through the <laughs> microphone. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Curran, and I hope you uh, have a great night. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Bye. Thank you to our producer, Kate Cruschel, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Tea and Murder. You can rate and review us on iTunes, and you can tell all your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. Our next episode is Halloween Party. You can rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookseller, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next week's book can be found in the episode notes. Head to our Instagram to find out who the mystery guest will be. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.